Uh, this is Robert Picardo, and when I'm not aboard the Federation Starship Voyager, I spend my free time listening to Women at Warp. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. With me this morning is Sue. Hi. And Jera. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the Voyager episode Warlord, but we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron... You can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards. <laughs> From thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries, visit www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there any other housekeeping we need to remember? There is. We are having a giveaway. Woo! Yeah. So we have um two scarves from the 50th anniversary collection. They're infinity scarves with two different uh, Delta patterns in the original uh, TOS color schemes. So in order to enter this giveaway, this is open to everyone. We will ship internationally. As long as the U.S. Postal Service will get you mail, we can ship it to you. Um, the way to enter is to send an email to crew at womenatwarp.com, put in the subject of the email, just giveaway, so we know it's an entry, and tell us, this is how you enter, tell us your, either your favorite part of discovery or why you're not watching. Your answer has no effect on whether you're a winner. When every response we get is going to go into a randomizer and we will pick two winners contact them, get addresses, and mail stuff out. And uh, we might even compile the responses we get, though, into a blog post. Cool. Does that all make sense? Yeah. So you're you're not being chosen on your answer, but your answer might end up in a blog. It's like the skill testing question, except for we thought it was more fun than asking you what 8 plus 5 is. Right. And it's, it's it can be two sentences. It can be a well, actually, don't write an essay because we'll still read it. And that's a lot of reading. <laughs> we got lives here, people. <laughs> if you want to contribute to our blog, that's a separate thing, which you should email blog at womenatwarp.com. <laughs> but we'll put uh, images of the two scarves in the show notes for this episode, as well as write out the directions for entry. So you don't have to, you know, keep hitting back and write that all down. It'll all be in the show notes. Awesome. So continuing on with our episode, unless there's more housekeeping? I think that's it. Yeah. All right. So who wants to give us a brief synopsis of Warlord? I guess I can. This strange, strange little episode. Yeah. Um. So it starts out and they rescue a ship that is in distress. And there are three people that they beam off the ship. And this one guy dies in sickbay. And his companions, who are his wife and, I guess, friend, um, are, uh, they befriend Kess. And Kess starts acting maybe strangely or maybe totally rationally, depending on how you see her breaking up with Neelix. Because <laughs> mm. she breaks up with Neelix. Rational. And Very rational. Then, 
probably more definitively strange, uh, she attacks uh, Janeway and the transporter chief and helps the people escape uh, and uh, flee to this planet. And it turns out that she has been possessed by this warlord. The warlord is trying to depose a dude that like took away his kingdom hundreds of years ago and he's developed technology to jump bodies to be immortal, basically. Pretty much. Yeah. Only like more creepy and less quirky humorous. Uh, so, uh, Kess in, with the warlord, uh, guy's name's Tyrion. So Tyrion with Kess's body goes back to the planet. Uh, they kill the dude. I forget what he's called, like, the chief Poobah. Um, he has an actual title. It's like <laughs> the Ang, Angricor or something. I, Autark? Autark. Autark. Thank you. Right. They also say Castellan a lot. But, I thought that the Castellan was honky. like hit the the sort of right hand man dude. Well, right, but like she, Kes keeps saying Castellan, and like when they use that same word in Deep Space Nine for the Cardassians, it's Castellan. Yeah, which I found odd and jarring. Guys, I think we need to make a top ten list of our favorite ridiculous titles. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyway, the uh, son of the guy who got killed is on Voyager trying to help Janeway uh, get Kess back. Tuvok tries a mission that's sort of aborted and Tuvok is held captive. And meanwhile, Kess is struggling really hard against Tyrion uh, to regain bodily autonomy. And at the end of the day is successful... Then it par- sparks like a sea change in her life. Is that <laughs> roughly it? More or less, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss about this episode. One thing before we get like too much into the cast stuff, uh, this is the first look that we get at the. Uh, well, I always thought it was a Hawaiian holodeck program, but apparently it's a spa on Talax. Mm-hmm. And this is like, yeah, the opening scene is like Neelix getting his foot rub from a scantily clad Talaxian woman. Uh, how did we feel <laughs> about this? <laughs> Neelix's feet. That was what I really needed to start to start this journey with. I mean, obviously these scenes are there for humor in this yeah. episode, but it's a little. Odd. They say you, know, Neelix, they, you say that, but I don't find myself laughing very much. <laughs> well, I mean, Neelix has invited Tom and Harry to basically experience part of his culture that he's recreated. And yeah, it's like a relaxing part of the culture or and supposed to be a spa day. But like Tom just takes it right over and makes it, you know, the American idea of paradise. So like mm-hmm. and, and they just. That count it as appropriation? feels disrespectful, and then Neelix is just right into it, which is just, ugh. Yeah, there were, like, two particularly problematic aspects of this. One being the part where basically, like, we need more people, and what they really mean are, like, scantily clad women. Mm-hmm. And then what makes that more problematic is the fact that Neelix, or not Neelix, uh, Kim is, like, uh, bring over characters from my other program, and it's these three women in like 
sheer or like uh, metallic spandex like bikini type outfits and uh like who are they oh like they're a championship volleyball team and they're all just like smiling and waiting to go pat kim in paris yeah hot and, that's uh, that's the um that's about as far as harry's sexual fantasies go <laughs> yeah it's really annoying because like women athletes face a lot of pressure to be sexualized or else you don't get sponsorships and you don't get positions and you don't get funding to um, pursue your ambitions to go be at the Olympics or whatever. Do you remember it was a couple years ago and I think the Summer Olympics, there was a commentator who made a comment about the women and said they don't even they don't have curves they don't even look like women anymore because of the yeah. sports bras and right and there was a whole response on YouTube about like this is how sports bras work but just the fact that that's something that we're st- still dealing with it's so ridiculous wouldn't it yeah. have wouldn't it have been absolutely amazing though if like in the third act of this episode just out of nowhere we have a cutaway to Harry just in the holodeck and these women being like, Harry, oh my God, play at your feet when you try to spike the ball. He's like, yes. I'm crying. I'm just, I just get afraid I'm going to get hit. And they're like, Harry, you're never going to be an athlete with that attitude. Yeah, if they had at least been like, if they had at least got to talk, which I get that every person you pay to talk costs more. So, you know, I get that from a production perspective, but it's frustrating that they're just like these silent babes kind of and they're supposed to be professional bikinis they're not even in like sport bikinis which is a thing well i mean we did talk in our sexual agency episode because someone asked about later in that episode balana makes changes to the program to make there be like scientifically clad hunks at least one who's her masseuse and Mm -hmm. it sort of implied like uh you know that she would have been offended by having only the women there but you know, she turned it on her on its head and made herself a babe guy. But we talked a bit about that in the agency about that, like, it's problematic, but not exactly the same thing. Right. At any rate, wasn't super funny. No. There was also the uh, Caribbean band. Uh, the only the only people of color. Yeah. in the program. Yeah, it's like, okay, well, and there's Kim, but you know, in that... Oh, well, yes. Yeah, but... The only non-main cast people of color. <laughs> yeah, and all of the, like, people that were there to be the sexual ideals were white. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I guess they can make good music. Like, it was just... Uh, I don't know. It was unfortunate. Um, a bit reductivist, but... Yes. Yeah. Do people want to talk about the breakup scene? Because that's also pretty early on. There is a lot to talk about there especially in the fact that um it takes Kess being possessed in um essentially having a guy telling her what to do and calling the shots to have her make what is clearly the most sensible decision of her life well what's a little bit surprising is that it sticks yeah right because she was not herself i think at that point she's still supposed to be partly in charge of her faculties but you don't know for sure, so you could easily write it off. And certainly, like, Neelix at the end kind of expects, like, he seems very hopeful in during the rescue mission that, like, oh, she must not have meant any of it. And a lot of our commenters and Ethan Phillips actually <coughs> raised that they were really disappointed that there wasn't a, like, closure scene. Um, well, you'd think yeah, there would have been some level of closure there because they were really, really trying to sell us on 
at least there being a believable relationship between these two, which we never really got. It was always creepy. Yeah, I was just yeah. glad you not to have more You would have expected them to talk about it and say, is this how you really feel? Yeah. Is this what we want to continue to do? That would have been amazing if we'd gotten a bit of him being like, so I, get, I understand that you weren't totally in control. And she's like, oh, no, that was all me. It's over, <laughs> Neelix. Yeah, because like at the end, um, it's sort of alluded to, she talks to Tuvok and says, you know, it's changed my relationships with my closest friends, like Harry, T- like uh, Tom and Neelix. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it sort of alludes that it's changed things and that she's going to pursue that path, but she never talks it out with Neelix. Also, she's going to join the military. She thinks she can really get behind this warlording thing if she pushes it in the right direction. <laughs> But I really liked the scene itself. I feel like I was like, damn, Cass, if you were only like this all the time. Right? <laughs> like, not the whole thing, but that breakup scene where, like, she's just really honest with him about how he's always trying to insert himself into her plans and gets jealous when she wants to have friends of her own and um, that she just, like, needs some time to herself to sort things out. And well, and just how powerful is that line of maybe I didn't realize relationships could be any different? Mm-hmm. Like, when you've only had destructive relationships, yeah. how true is that? My goodness. Oh, so true. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, most of us have to make some mistakes, and uh, it is super powerful for her to see her, like, stand up for herself and articulate why. I mean, she does that in some other episodes, like, where she gets mad at Neilis for being jealous of Tom, but I feel mm-hmm. like... This was just super valid, and Neelix doesn't really examine himself, and, you know, he's just like, oh, I could be different, but he never, you know, he would never actually try to be different. Right. Especially considering the fact that Tess is only still, like, two, three years old, and she spent a big chunk of that time being Neelix's girlfriend, so her life has been, like, 80% mistakes to this point. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, we had a comment um, on Facebook from C, who says, the lack of proper closure on the Castanelix relationship always stuck out like sore thumb to me. I knew there are, I know there are objections to his occasional treatment of her, and I'm sympathetic to those, but I always expect in Trek that our crew will inevitably come to work out their business and help us see that they are adults who can navigate relationships. It can definitely be argued that Warlord is where we see Cass moving into new territory and becoming more of an adult herself. This was a missed opportunity. That's true. It really could have, um, if they had we love that breakup scene. We've established that. What if they carried that on to sort of be them having an adult emotional conversation about this is what I need, this is what you are looking for, and those two things don't line up. That would have been potentially not only a really great scene of closure to have them have Kess doing to show her growth, it could have been a really good point for character growth with Netflix to have to accept that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think they should have worked it out. Um, I think that would have also not not sent a great a great message like you said basically like she's a child who's never had any other relationships to like model or to um learn from and uh, i don't think that you know her staying in that dysfunctional relationship that was always like kind of felt a little one-sided or at least like always was more in his interest would really be good but yeah i mean maybe more of a conversation about you know well that wasn't me when i was talking to you but having been through this experience i realize it's still true yeah there was potential there that was missed but they do spend another year slash season on the same ship together yeah so in a way they are being adults about it Mm -hmm. do we want to talk about 
the whole like has Tyrion sharing a body situation. Sure. I mean, I'll say that the initial idea for this episode um, involved Kess being unwillingly possessed by the spirit of an antagonist, like a warrior spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lisa Klink, who was in the writer's room at the time, said, basically, this seemed like a great thing to do with Kess, who is the least warrior-like character you could think of. And we heard again and again from our listeners that what they really liked was that this episode was able to stretch uh, Jennifer Lean's a- um, acting ability and show this whole other side of Kess that we just never got to see, which I think It's definitely the best stuff they ever gave her. Yep. Which is very telling, isn't it? That they felt that in order to get this great performance out of this actress, they had to write kind of the opposite of the character that they were giving her. Feel, that feels mm-hmm. like something the writers would have been like, hang on, have we been doing her a disservice this whole time? <laughs> What an amazing thing to realize. One thing I, I really liked about the character design of Warlord Kess was, I don't even know if this is intentional, but I'd like to think it is, was that they sort of kept her same clothing style and just mm-hmm. pushed it darker. So it was like, yep. it was dark Kess, which could be an indication of her fighting back that she's still in there and influencing mm-hmm. in some way. The decisions that are being made, even is, and is something as potentially small as fashion. Yeah, I feel like it particularly at first when she's wearing sort of that beige dress with the cape and the collar. Mm-hmm. Um, but like as it goes further, it gets to feel more like a mirror Kira outfit. Yeah, but it's still it has the same cuts and like it, it's not color blocking really because it's all dark, mm-hmm. but almost like texture blocking. Yeah. That they do in a lot of Kess's outfits. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, like, it's less feminine and, like, traditionally feminine. Like, her mm-hmm. dresses tend to be very, like... Very girly, very... A little childish most of the time. Yeah. Which, you know, I think it raises some of the same issues we talked about in our Mirror Universe episode around sort of, like, you know, you get to see the, like, bondage light look in the Mirror yes. Universe or, like, when the person turns evil because that's not something we would see in, like, the utopia of the Federation. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Federation um. is repressed. <laughs> um, I one thing I thought was interesting is uh, when she she gives the whole like hang my portrait on the wall, and uh, I thought that was interesting. But it, it would have been cool if it was a portrait of Cass. It was interesting. Like I guess they just had to pull an old portrait out of storage that was mm-hmm. left around from a hundred years ago. From he sh- old he Tyrion. didn't want to have to sit through another portrait painting because those things take forever. Yeah, and it's a good thing no one destroys the portraits of the, de- the deposed rulers. They just, like, keep it on hand. <laughs> they belong in a museum! Well, I mean, if the whole point is that I'm the same person, yeah, I, I understand the whole original yes. form kind of thing. Well, I liked how a lot of the other characters, like, questioned her ability to lead, and she repeatedly would be like, you know, I'm not a child, I'm not a little girl. Um, but, but not just that, like, I'm not Kess, but say it like this, this body or like she has unique abilities and, uh, showed yes. how like super powerful Kess could be with the right training. Kess uh, has force powers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty For badass. Kess can murder you with her mind. How do we forget that so often? Yeah. Well, I was like, Kess herself never really tapped into that. I think it would have been cool, like, instead of what we got to see with Kess, if it was more like River from Firefly, where yes. the stuff, 
yeah, like there, I mean, there's just so much more potential, but where the um, powers were uh, maybe like more uncontrollable on a regular basis mm -hmm. instead of just like in a couple episodes. And that was an extreme situation. And like the rest of the time, she's nothing to be afraid of. Um, but like that, you know, that she's ultimately good. She just can't figure out how to control these powers. She's trying, damn it. They had such an open opportunity after this episode mm -hmm. for Kess to remember everything that she could do. Yeah. And try it more often and explore that. And it really was just, well, just left yeah. that way. I mean, they, they tried at times, but I mean, if you discovered these powers were part of your brain's ability, wouldn't you be thinking about it all the time? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I would stay up late just thinking I disintegrate Helix into a million atoms. So many things I could do. Well, and one of the, th so one of the ways that we see, actually pretty much the only way that we see Kess, like, still, that we know Kess is still there, um, other than that we actually get to see, like, it during a dream sequence of, uh, Tyrans, um, is that Tyrion really likes flowers now. <laughs> yeah, one, maybe he always liked them, and it's just like, well, if I'm in this tiny, cute little body, no one can contest it! Yeah. I, I... I mean, I guess it would make sense that if Tyrion is working really hard to suppress, uh, like, the rest of Kess's personality, that those types of things would sneak through. Because, you know, he's not going to be on guard against floral preference. Or if he really did get into wearing her, like, little sort of baby doll get-ups again, and people are like, uh, Tyrion, is, is, this, is this you we're talking to? Yes, I have always liked these. You've just never let me like them. <laughs> yes. So apparently... I realize I'm jumping back a tiny bit. There was a scripted scene written oh, right, for Fair yeah. Trade that mm -hmm. was supposed to bring more closure to this relationship, and it was cut. Mm -hmm. Just FYI. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I could have lived with it, although part of me was just so relieved by the time I got to the breakup that I was like, yes, let us never speak of it again, <laughs> <laughs> even if that's not the most realistic storytelling. Well, there's a lot to be said about suspension of disbelief when it comes to Voyager. Yeah. Um, the other thing, like, so Kess doesn't just have force powers, but also just the amount of strength that we see her exhibit in her struggles with Tyrion during that mm -hmm. dream sequence is pretty cool. That, um, you know, she's very, uh, she's clearly, like, a little scared, as she says when Tuvok tries to mind meld with her, but she um, is really like mustering everything she has to keep fighting and is unnerving him and calls him out on like, you know, I'm getting to you and I'm going to keep doing this because you can't outlast me forever and I'm never going to surrender to you. And ultimately they're like, that's what really mattered. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. It's clearly indicated that everyone he's done this to previously has not fought back or not been able to fought to fight back. Yeah. Because they say that she's the only one who wasn't a willing host. Yeah. The, and the people with him though, say don't, she's gone. Mm hmm. So, I mean, think about everyone that's happened to previously, you know, they probably weren't. Yeah, possibly. And they just didn't have the strength and the ability is to fight back the way that Kess did because of her, I don't know, physiology, biology, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Brain yeah. chemistry. I did really like the sort of dinner scene at the end, though, when, like, the fleet's coming and the 
Castellan uh, <laughs> is like, we have to go fight. And she's like, we're here to celebrate my wedding, which we can talk about in a oh, second. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, like with the portrait behind her, and it actually reminded me a lot of the um, the Patrick Stewart Macbeth, where he has like the red portrait of himself behind him and he's going crazy at the dinner scene. Like the whole, it had a lot of that kind of found like Shakespearean vibe of I'm of like the hubris and I'm in charge now and um, I'm going to make everyone do what I say, but I secretly know that I'm losing my grasp on the power at the same time. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. I was into it. I hadn't thought about that. There is some, some very Macbethy vibes here. Dude's even got a lady partner who's helping him keep it all together. Sort of. <laughs> Shall we talk about that now? Yeah, let's talk about that. So... The previous host of Tyrion was married, or I guess Tyrion was married to this woman. And Tyrion in Kess says to her, nothing's going to change. And then announces that she's going to be marrying like the the second, the prince, basically. Mm-hmm. And then like there's this weird scene about that that feels like they're going to be a thruple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why the hell and, like, not yeah and and the the wife is like well are we still married even and there's a whole lot of that and it's just very awkward and i feel like a little bit clunky yeah are you saying that star trek did not do a great job in representing a sexual minority <laughs> well i mean we did see the possibility of like a a bisexual or even homosexual relationship possibly a poly bisexual uh, relationship yeah yeah being uh because someone was possessed by an evil warlord <laughs> i don't know what could possibly be wrong with that <laughs> yeah and that was kind of how i read it too but i'll just point out uh before, that uh, we had a facebook comment from michaela grace did you want to read that one Okay, so Michaela says, it's been a while since I watched it, but the cis-heteronormativity in this episode always bugged me. To be fair, it always bugs me. The guy has a female partner already, but when he comes back in the body of Kess, she decides to replace her with a new male partner for no apparent reason, because she can? Everybody knows it's the same guy with a different body. Why anything would have to change never made sense to me. It also seemed like a wasted opportunity to address sex, gender, and sexuality. There is an almost kiss that frankly is downright cruel. Voyager always avoids potentially queer moments, especially romantic ones. But with this almost kiss, it felt like rather than doing what they actually do, uh, doing what they usually do and just tell stories where it's never addressed, they actually wanted to show the active avoidance of showing a queer kiss. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely, Michaela. It makes sense. That, I mean, I guess the way that you could read it that way is um, that Tyrion was still in love with the woman, but because Tyrion's in Kess's body now, they become like a heterosexual female and therefore wanted to marry that guy. Um, but I read it kind of more like you did, Sue, like that it was going to be sort of possibly bisexual possibly poly relationship because that w- marriage scene basically she surprises her wife by mm-hmm. saying like i'm marrying this guy now so this is gonna be my actual husband but i want 
uh, us to all be close. I want the three of us to be very close and is right. holding their hands. And so it's, I mean, I definitely read sexy undertones into that, not just going between her and the new husband. But I also definitely read this as a political move. Yes. Like this is to help legitimize her position. She has somebody from what the, the royal family she just deposed is now on her side. And, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that definitely. And I mean, she, if anything, the hesitancy actually seems to be more on the wife's part that the wife is like, things have really changed here. I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, and Kess is like, well, you still love me, right? You still love me or like Tyrion. And uh, she's like, of course, I still love you. So they show like the love persisting despite like a, a body shift. But oh, I-, I just realized something. We've kind of got a weird, funky funhouse mirror of the Neelix and Kess relationship going on here with, hey, I'm not getting what I want out of this relationship. And you're expecting a lot of unreasonable things from me. In Tyrion and his wife's uh, relationship versus, you know, Tess and Neelix's breakup they had earlier. Huh, interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can, I, I definitely take the point that I don't think this was, like, a particularly positive or nuanced queer representation. I also think it, it was a bit tied up in the dream sequence where Tyrion is saying to Cass basically, like, aren't you getting off on this? Um, where he's uh, sort of... Uh, like holding her her throat in like a sexual way and saying like that you know doesn't this isn't this power exciting and um there's like definitely like sexual overtones there and so there's the same I think a very similar to the mirror Kira dynamic where there's just sort of this like power hedonism bisexuality kind of thing like well if you can have sex with everyone why don't you versus like a legitimate uh orientation or uh like a preference that you would see all the time in real life yeah <laughs> which is a little exhausting let's be real yeah I don't know what do you think that they could have done better with this dynamic if in this episode particularly i mean they could have made it absolutely clear that Tyrion was staying with his wife Mm -hmm. and found another way to make sure that i wish i remembered the character's name that this guy was loyal oh isn't it dave damus or it's uh it sounded like dennis demis i think it's i don't know i like the idea of just out in space there's a guy named dennis i remember (laughs) yeah let's just call him dennis (laughs) dennis dennis the second son of the grand poobah aka the menace (laughs) (laughs) we're so good at this yes why are we not writing this i mean maybe you could have had uh when Tyrion brings in the husband, you could have had the wife also, uh, instead of the wife being phased, because the wife knows that Tyrion can switch bodies. Um, right. And uh, you could have the wife being the one who's like pushing for them to still be together. And is like, of course I still love you. Why would anything have changed? And um, have right. like, Kess not like weirded out by that, but be like more leery because of political reasons. Well, it also brought me my my brain back to the host and rejoined. Mm-hmm. Right. And the same question that we have in those episodes of when, when the bodies change, what happens to the relationships that the people who had those bodies were in? 
Mm -hmm. Right. And the trill, of course, whether we think it's a good idea or a bad idea, have what they've decided is their cultural norm around that. Yeah. And as far as we know, this culture has nothing like that because it's only Tyrion who's been able to do this. Which mm-hmm. along those lines, this is probably, if he's been doing this for 200 years, unless these are really long-lived people, this is probably like his fifth wife. Yeah, they could have like Twilight Zoned and have his ex show up and be like, hey, remember me, bucko? Right. I mean, <laughs> or potentially, you know, fifth spouse. Well, and also he's the only one who can do it, but yet everyone seems to know about it. Right. Well, it's, <laughs> it's a long-standing rumor or something. Yeah. A legend. It surprises me, though, that other people wouldn't be trying to, like, somehow uh, steal that ability or, like, some more internal... I mean, I get there's already an internal power struggle, but it was interesting to me that people weren't trying to stab him in the back because of that. Mm-hmm. I know you said internal power struggle, but I thought internal power struggle. Maybe if there, there's one of these guys, like, every couple generations born who can do this, and he's always a dick who the people have to fight back against. <laughs> this isn't the first time this has happened and it won't be the last <laughs> yeah it's like a two-party system of reasonable people and occasional dicks and an occasional <laughs> immortal dick yes <laughs> oh my god did we just reinvent greek mythology <laughs> oh my god is that of the united states of america oh my gosh sorry too soon too political <laughs> Um, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say who I meant. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, you know, if we want this like future utopian Star Trek, you would hope that people generally, and I think that from the way we see society going um, in terms of like the viewpoints of children and youth um, or like, you know, young teens, um, that I think like, there is gaining growing acceptance of gender fluidity Um, that like there's some pretty Mm -hmm. significant polling on that in the UK in particular on the attitudes of youth about uh, gender identity. So you would hope that by the 24th century utopia and ideals that like people would be far less weirded out, at least on the Starfleet side by people switching bodies based on gender. It's still a traumatic thing to happen, especially if it wasn't your consent. Mm hmm. And also just less weird about bisexual or same-sex relationships. Uh, Yeah, you'd hope so. Um, But this isn't that society. But it's still the only time we get to see it, really. And it would have been good to see the kiss, just so we had another kiss to look at. Oh my gosh, yeah. uh, Like, the three same-sex kisses, I'm counting this one as one because it's so close to one just for the sake of this argument. Of the three same-sex sex. uh, sex, uh, same-sex kisses on Star Trek we um, we had up until recently. Uh, all of them were between good-looking, you know, white women. Uh, two out of three of them were between the evil alternate alternate version of a character we already know and love. So that feels pretty telling. Yeah, this would have at least been interracial. It, oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, although, I, you know, I felt like, um, you know, the wife being a woman of color was, you know, it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't, she wasn't like the most notable character there. The Castellan actually was like, had more character development than she did, I think. And he was also a man of color. Right. Um, but still, it was uh, generally, you know, as 
they tend to be generally pretty white uh, episode. Uh, Tuvok got a little bit of a role in there, uh, failing sort mm-hmm. of spectacularly at trying to save Kess and uh, then failing, not failing so much near the end. So, and, I mean, it was good that like Neelix is the one who ultimately sticks the thing on her face that gets like the thing out of Kess's body. But then Kess is the one. Neelix is the one who shoots her. Oh, I thought that he also stuck the thing on her face. Well, he does. Yeah. But I think I feel like that's shooting her <laughs> is a little bit more intense than sticking that thing on her face but uh the uh, but then Cass is the one who realizes that Tyrion is still there in another body who is the body of the the uh prince Dennis <laughs> prince Dennis lord of the menaces <laughs> Um, so it was good that, you know, it wasn't like, it didn't feel like there was a damsel in distress situation. And it was very clear that, like, she wouldn't even be there if if she hadn't fought so hard the whole time. And I liked the closing scene with Tuvok. I thought that was nice. I liked the Kess-Tuvok mentorship. And I thought it was really nice, actually, for Tuvok to acknowledge the importance of emotions. And, like, you're going to have to experience your emotions and not just, like, try to purge yourself of them. That was nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to have feels. you got to go through them to continue on your path. And it's going to be awesome because we know now you're super powerful. Let's just pretend that it ends there. <laughs> I just really wish we could have had, like, a let it go defying gravity musical number of Kess being like, I am super powerful. I can destroy anyone I want. I just got to be confident and I can rip the whole apart. That's why I'm defying Neelix. Gonna take my ex and shove him in a helix. <laughs> you guys. I want this to be a thing now. So in the discovery panel, I'm, yeah. I'm diverging a little bit, but in the discovery panel at Paley Fest this weekend, uh, they were talking about how you know how TV has changed and it's it's not so serialized. So when things happen in Discovery, they have consequences and the characters are being changed by one another. Mm-hmm. And those changes are permanent. And then Wilson Cruz from the end of the row grabs Anthony Rapp's arm and goes, that's a song in Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> and I died. Because <laughs> once you've been, been a theater nerd. I mean, he basically said, like, and that's your comment from the musical theater section of the stage. That's adorable. <laughs> it was the best. Uh, why don't we go around and do a round of final thoughts, but we can also share our fi- some final thoughts from our listeners. <laughs> Sue, did you want to read the comment from Volandar on Twitter? Uh, Volandar writes, I really like it. It's a rare episode where Jennifer Lean gets to act beyond Kess's nafishness, and she just goes for it. Now, in this tweet, it says naifish, N-A-I-F-I-S-H, H. And we're not sure if that means naivishness or waifishness, but we're in- expecting that it was an autocorrect spelling issue. And either way, it but makes still, sense. But still, the point is there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, similarly, Tanya H. on Twitter said, Jennifer Lean did a terrific job, probably her strongest episode. The script had its problems, but gave her an all-too-rare challenge. Uh, and Murray on Facebook said, this is perhaps the episode that best makes the case for Jennifer Lean as a tragically squandered resource. Yep. Well, I think it's really interesting. We have a quote, actually, from Jennifer Lean talking about this mm. episode. 
saying, I've never played any role quite like this before, but I enjoyed being so strong and determined. And I mean, that's a great thing about this episode, but you sort of like reverse engineer that means she's never, she hasn't felt like she's played a character before this that has ever been strong or determined. And that's upsetting. Yeah, I mean, I think Kess as a character, and we'll we'll come back and do a full episode on her at some point, but I think she's pretty determined. Like, we see her determined to do a lot of things. She's from the very first episode where she's, like, living on the surface, and she helps Voyager people get in and out in the super dangerous situation. But uh, strong... I think a lot of her strength gets overshadowed by her being, like, super, super kind and super, super young. Mm-hmm. Both of which are seen as sort of weakness of character in a lot of media, unfortunately. Yeah, and she just doesn't stand up to Neelix, not just Neelix. Like, it's very rare to see her stand up to people. And, uh, you know, the episode, it's occurring to me, uh, the one uh, pair tuition where they, uh, she does, like, basically yell at Neelix in Paris for, you know, fighting over her. But then at the end, they both almost die. And she's just like, I'm so sorry I was mad, even though she had every right to be mad because no one ever asked her how she felt. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, I think, her getting overshadowed and overpowered by the men uh, in her sphere, the Doctor and Neelix in Paris. But it also serves the false equivalence of strength and aggression. Yeah, definitely. Or determination and, and aggression. Which... Yeah. I mean, is something that we definitely need to break because it's yep. not accurate. Yeah, because we definitely see like strength and Bolana, and like to an extent, like strength and Janeway. Um, if not like you know, Janeway, could, she can handle a rifle. Um, don't get me wrong, but um, but Kess is like also very. Uh, she's the most traditionally feminine of those three, for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, um, it's interesting, and I think. It's cool to get her to challenge that. I do think this episode challenges it slightly for all the times that Tyrion defends his use of uh, Kess's body that, like, this body is no less capable than a man's. But right. it is not nice, I guess, that he wants to stay in it, that he's yeah. so determined to stay in it because of its, quote, unique abilities. Mm-hmm. Any other final thoughts? Again, I just find it really unfortunate that, again, we see... Kes acting very sensible, and that's the first sign that something is very wrong. <laughs> that feels so telling, both about um, how Kes, as a representative of characters who are, you know, kind and a little naive, are treated as, you know, being char- weak of character, and also of Kes herself's treatment as a character by the writers. And again, that it takes a man possessed, a uh, man in control of her to make her make some good decisions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, well, and also to make her realize her, her own potential that throughout the series, it's really men who are helping her realize her potential. Um, I mean, Janeway is a mother figure, absolutely. But um, in terms of like her nursing abilities, her, um, her psychic abilities, that's really Tuvok. And I like that relationship there. But I feel like other than giving her like a hydroponics bay, Janeway, uh, Janeway is more like a nurturing figure, figure versus like a mentor figure. Mm hmm. To Kess, like she helps with her. With Seven, in- we get to see her be a mentor. With Kess, we just see her be kind of a part time mom. Yeah. Like, she helps her really beautifully in Elogium, 
Um, but I don't really remember a lot of her, you know, help, like Paris teaches her shuttle piloting and the doctor is teaching her medicine and, uh, Neelix is just mansplaining a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's really like they didn't know what to do with her, especially because they were like aging her in cat years. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And like, how young is she really supposed to be? She's only, I guess maybe it's season three so like four years old yeah right? maybe a little less than that because voyager was a little condensed on the time frame during yeah. the beginning so maybe like you know three and there's a, half, a whole another conversation we could bring up about how uh cast being representative of how women are forced to you know grow up older uh quicker wow. and are sexualized faster than boys are oh for sure mm-hmm. but they for where she is in her lifespan at this point, mm-hmm. they're still treating her like a young, young child. Yeah, definitely. I don't even really like that Janeway lets Neilis go on the mission. Like, he he's basically like, I have combat training, sort of, almost. And basically, I love her and want to protect her, and so I'll do anything in my power. And she's like, I know you will, of course, I'm going to let you go. And I was like, I feel like that's the wrong decision. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that that's... Doesn't that count as being emotionally compromised? A little bit. Yeah, we've talked about cases where, like, sometimes being a good ally means you recognize that someone's emotional bias is a strength. I don't think it is in this case. I also don't think he needs allyship in this case. He's not, like, experiencing oppression. Um, I just think that it's kind of a liability in terms of his own safety and the safety of the rest of the away team. Sorry, Neelix. Not sorry. No, not sorry. Um, But overall, though, I'm a decent fan of this episode. Shall we rate it? Um, I I rate it four out of five childlike Full haircut suddenly turned weirdly, you know, Hitler Youth-esque by context. <laughs> wow. Um, I will rate this 3.9 out of 5 ostentatious dictator portraits. Oh, you took mine. Oh, sorry. <laughs> guys, guys, it's okay. You can never have too many ostentatious dictator portraits. I mean, as long as it's only one at a time. Maybe it's like in ancient Rome and it's just the same portrait, but you can peel the face off and stick a new one on it. (laughs) Well, how about seven out of ten warlord sticky face ghost traps? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, Do you want to do outros, Grace? Sure. Um, Sue, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Jara, where can people find you? You can find me at Jara Penguin on Twitter. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. Or at TrekkieFeminist.tumblr.com. And you can find me in deep space breaking up with boyfriends I shouldn't have had in the first place. Also on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. And if you'd like to contact our show, such as to enter our awesome giveaway, you can email crew at womenupwarp.com. Other ways you can contact our show is you can find us on Twitter at Women at Warp, on Facebook uh, by looking up Women at Warp, and uh, you can also find us on Patreon. On Patreon dot com slash women at warp and our website women at warp.com where you can leave comments and you can also rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and they- don't forget to check out the blog on women at warp.com yes and our book club at goodreads 
<laughs> all of the places and all of the things. Yeah. We're in every quadrant. Really quickly, we are, just as a reminder, since you mentioned the book club, we are reading Rogue Saucer right now. It is one of the TNG novels, and that is an episode we're planning um, around the holiday season. Not to be confused with Neelix's cookbook, Rogue Saucier. (laughs) (laughs) Or not to be confused with an accident involving Hikaru Sulu's teacup in Star Trek VI. Oh, so sad. That was a rogue saucer. Yes. So you can find our book club uh, if you go to goodreads.com and search Women at Warp under Groups. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.